Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And per Pelton Cast tradition, we are joined today by, from the Athletic Seattle, Ben Baldwin to help us break down the season that was for the Seattle Seahawks 2022. Thanks for having me. One one year we'll actually do this where they won at least a playoff game, but at least in contrast to last year, they actually made the playoffs. So definitely better. Did did we not have had we not started this tradition yet the last time that they won a playoff game? I feel like we maybe had, but I'd have to go back in the archives to know for sure. It's been a I want to say we did it after the when they beat the Eagles and lost yeah. to the Packers. I kind of yeah. think we did it that year. Yeah. I think so. But not not after they've won a Super Bowl that year. There was, <laughs> there was no specific season recap pod, alas. And uh, the Super Bowl 49 cancellation uh, <laughs> occurred during the Pelton Cast of Dark Ages. So no, no recap then either. Uh, the Seahawks, inspired by Tristan's words on last week's podcast, came <laughs> out and led 17 to 16 at halftime. And then you, Tristan, stopped watching and the game stayed frozen there. That's true. 17, 16 forever, baby. Never forget. <laughs> the Seahawks, we'll hear more about this in the weekly podcast. The Seahawks fared in the second half about as well as my children's basketball team fared in their game. Well, it was a really I fun afternoon for me. Continued watching the game. And things, one of the things I said last week on the pod was if the Seahawks had to play from behind, that this could get ugly. And I think that's kind of what we saw after the Geno Smith strip sack and the subsequent San Francisco touchdown. Yeah. And that was when the avalanche kind of started up until that point, they had been doing pretty well. And I, for the second straight 49ers game tweeted that after watching Brock Purdy, I had, I convinced myself that the Seahawks were going to win this game because he's not that good. And then, um, yeah, the, the strip sack happened and then two very quick San Francisco touchdowns. And then after that, it was unfortunately over for the Seahawks. I, for one, appreciated the commitment to the bet. I mean, the one thing, like, <laughs> as exciting as it was, the thing I wasn't tweeting at halftime is at that point, San Francisco was averaging 8.6 yards per play. The Seahawks were averaging 5.3 yards per play and were kind of hanging on by a thread based on the fact that San Francisco had had to settle for so many field goals in the red zone. Yeah, and then I didn't look at what their yards per play ended up like, but with the, when you have 65 yards after the catch on one play, then that, that's going <laughs> to hurt the numbers at the end of the game. I mean, I, I asked Kevin after the game if the discrepancy in yards per play was historic, uh, <laughs> which I'm guessing it was not historic, but, uh, you know, just ultimately, like, over time, even with the, the drive, with a short period of time when the Seahawks gave the Niners the ball back, and, and obviously the Seahawks came down and scored as well, aided by the penalty in the first half. That's where I stopped watching, so that's the only thing I can comment on. But uh, when the Niners were able to get the ball downfield so quickly with those chunk plays in that possession, you could kind of feel like, unless something turned very, very quickly, or Brock Purdy wasn't sharp, which he wasn't necessarily in much of the first half, but it seemed like from the descriptions that changed in the second half and once Brock Purdy dialed in a little bit more like the Seahawks needed him to be extraordinarily off in this game and that's part of the reason that it was they... pretty off yeah for a while but there there were so many eventually there were so many open receivers and missed tackles something that we haven't mentioned yet that it, it just didn't matter how he played really other than 
well, to his credit, the one thing he did do really well that Pete Carroll mentioned after the game was avoid sacks. And Seattle had a lot of opportunities to get to him and just didn't. And that led to a lot of San Francisco's big plays. And that was one of the differences in the game. And the stat I mentioned on last week's pod that the Seahawks were, I believe, one in six when they had either zero or one sacks in a game. And that extended to one in seven. The yards allowed per play was, in fact, historic in some regards. 7.9 is where San Francisco finished at the most the yards per play the Seahawks have ever allowed in a playoff game. So from that standpoint, certainly pretty ugly. Well, let's move on. <laughs> I don't, we don't need to talk anymore about this. I mean, again, despite Tristan's takes, I don't know that any of us were terribly surprised that the Seahawks were were crushed as badly as they were by San Francisco. San Francisco was the better team. They had dominated two regular season matchups. It was a very different matchup because I did expect this game to be a little more defensive than it was. The Seahawks offense in the first half was really good, and it wasn't until they got behind and became one-dimensional. I think it was... Uh, Mike Shantigar, third Pelton brother, posted that they had four designed runs in the second <laughs> half, which is pretty wild. Uh, that's then when the offense fell off. But defensively, that 7.9 yards per play allowed in playoff history is the, let's see here, number 16 most in NFL playoff history. So not not great. And I guess that just brings us to the general question of we we posed this question midseason when things were much more optimistic. What did we learn about the 2022 Seahawks? Uh, where were we wrong when we thought about them and previewed them coming into the season? And where were we right? Yeah, so I think the the defense was pretty much spot on. No one who's not a very, very, very diehard Homer Seahawks fan thought that they would be a good defense and probably not even an average defense. And they... Um, when I checked yesterday, they they finished fifth worst in EPA per play, which seems about right. Yeah, uh, and we we saw what happened against a good offense, even with the third string quarterback on Saturday. So I I think none of that is surprising. If if we had found out all this before the season started, I I think we would have been like, yeah, that that sounds about right. The big surprise was Geno Smith, and I think we spent a lot of time talking about him last time, and that was that was our. Thing number one that we attributed Seattle outperforming their expectations to. And I, I think that's still right, although he has uh he did not play as well over the last uh 13 games or whatever as he did for the first five weeks. But if you take everything over the course of the season, he was without a doubt an above average starting quarterback and he made with the bonuses and stuff three and a half million dollars or something like that. So seven with the bonus. Three and a <laughs> oh, half seven. Okay. Yeah. Good good for him. Um so yeah, that, that's how you take a team that has hadn't drafted very well until this past year um, that had $50 million in dead cap hat is you get quarterback play that dramatically exceeds how much he gets paid. And, and that's how they were, um, I wouldn't say competitors, but competitive in a lot of the games that they played that weren't against the 49ers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, offensively, the Seahawks only finished 14th in offensive DVOA, which was kind of surprising. But the the difference from last season when they were a top 10 offense, despite the Russell Wilson injury and his struggles coming back from that injury, it was entirely in terms of the rush offense, which was more effective last season because Rashad Penny is the only running back that matters. <laughs> you know, that would draw a smile from Tristan. Uh, pass offense was eighth last year, eighth again this year. And 
I, I guess I'm curious because Ben, you've made the case over the course of the second half that people were probably being a little were a little too optimistic about the Seahawks quarterback play based on, you know, Gino's declining PFF grades after the first few weeks of the season and declining EPA per play. Where are you at with Gino? I mean, we're, we're not going to answer necessarily the Gino question, but in terms of his performance uh, after, after we've seen a full 18 weeks plus one playoff game. Yeah. So I, I think, so obviously the, the first thing is that he dramatically exceeded expectations. He deserves to be a starting quarterback somewhere and he deserves to get paid a lot, a lot of money. And I think for us, the, the question is um, whether the Seahawks will offer that money to him. And it, it sounds like from reporting and comments and stuff that that is the intention and we'll see uh, what it actually takes to make that happen. And of course the Seahawks do have the different uh, franchise tags available to them. So if they really want Geno Smith to be a Seahawk next year, they they can make it happen if they want to. I think the other question offensively <laughs> is how much credit do we give Shane Waldron for the offense operating as smoothly as it did? I, I thought he had a pretty fantastic game on Saturday. Yeah, I think he's... It's hard to know on the outside how good offensive coordinators are, but I... like the, there, There's nothing in that Shane Waldron has done that makes me think he's not... A, at least above average offensive coordinator and that plus DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett who help a lot. And what was for most of the season, pretty good offensive line play. Although that, that was not always the case in the second half of the season, especially in those, I think it was the second 49ers game and the, and the chiefs game where they really struggle in pass protection. And of course that did not help Geno Smith, but all in all, I think it's a pretty good situation. And if you get, like slightly above average quarterback play from a slightly above average situation and you pay a market rate salary, that's not like the worst thing in the world. And if the Seahawks didn't have a top five pick, I would probably think that extending him would be the right way to go. It's just such a different conversation because of the, this is the one year where the Seahawks had the alternative of actually getting a top quarterback prospect in a draft where there'll probably be a lot of guys going in the top 10 and they do have this pick where they can plausibly go get their guy if they're sold on somebody. We should pause to talk about DK for a little bit because I got to admit, I, I was a little down on him coming into this game, the slow finish to the season uh, on on the man-to-man podcast preview, Mike Sean and, and on The Athletic last week, Mike Sean had talked about basically the Seahawks recipe for winning this game was their stars showing up. And DK 100% did that. And one of the things I don't think has been, like someone mentioned, I saw, remember someone tweeting, it was rem- reminiscent of the Eagles playoff game, but I don't think people have like really given DK credit for his playoff track record completely. He has played four playoff games now with the Seahawks in in uh, four seasons. He has averaged 113 receiving yards per game in those. Uh, let's see, it's 11.9 yards per target has the 136-yard game on Saturday against San Francisco, a 96-yard game in their loss to the Rams, where he was you know, probably the best offensive player in that, scored two touchdowns, as he did on Saturday. And then in the two games in 2019, 11 catches and 14 targets for 219 yards. So th- this guy has been pretty monstrous in the biggest situations in against his career him. thus far. Very, very notable defenders as well, right? Jalen Ramsey, Shavarius Ward, play- players like that. Uh Obviously, incredible stuff. But are we having the Geno Smith conversation right now? Are we just no? Going we're saving the Geno Smith conversation. We're having okay, the, the offense but, conversation right now. Okay, because I was going to say if that's if we're getting into that right now, 
then we could get into it. And we're not having the defense conversation yet either. Well, I don't know if you do you have anything more to say on the offense or should we should we flip to the defense? I, I just think quickly there are it's the the offense conversation is a Geno Smith conversation. It's almost impossible to separate the two. Like, you know, Rashad Penny is a free agent after this year, is that right? Yes. I th- I think it it would be tough. I I mean I am so hopeful that Rashad Penny comes back and is a healthy running back again in the NFL, but it would be very difficult to project that. Right? I think we can all agree on that. I well, think, I think Ken Walker the third comes into next season as the starter, even no if doubt. Rashad Penny is healthy. And you're just hoping to have that one-two punch that Pete Carroll that has always to longed to have at that yeah. position. Yeah. Which I mean, again, if you could redo this year and have them both healthy, I think the Seahawks offense is probably better, despite what your feelings about running backs might be. Uh I think overall, I mean, you mentioned the the decline was generally in terms of rushing offense, right? Where where they finished 23rd in rushing DVOA. Ken Walker's a rookie running back. Like, we understand who he is. The hope is that he'll get better over time. The hope is that the offensive line will get better over time also because they were very, very young. We know after the season that Tyler Lockett is one of the best wide receivers in the NFL, definitely one of the most underrated wide receivers in the NFL. We know that not having Tyler Lockett is huge. Uh, We know that DK Metcalf has at least established himself uh, as a very, very good NFL receiver. This is an excellent two-wide receiver offense. And... Getting those tight ends involved, it's something that we saw from the very, very beginning of the season and that Shane Waldron is really, really good at is using all of his tight ends, using Noah Fant, using Will Disley, using Colby Parkinson, and more beyond that. So I think we can go into next season and slot in at a handful of different positions. We know that there's there's good to great talent in a lot of different places, but the reality is the quarterback is a free agent and the quarterback is also still a bit of an unknown. So to have an offense conversation that is not a Geno Smith conversation is, I, I just think it's moot at this point, but what we can well, say at the, the very least- It's not the Geno Smith future conversation. Okay. What we can say at the very least is that Geno Smith right now, not talking his future, is good enough to get the ball to the offensive targets that the Seahawks have. The Seahawks have good offensive weapons. They, they probably don't have great offensive weapons and that wouldn't be an issue if there weren't the 49ers in the division or whatever, right? There are teams around the league who do have those weapons and the Seahawks need a little bit more there beyond quarterback, right? We, we can, we'll talk about the draft later. We know that they need one more receiver on this team, right? The Dwayne Eskridge pick at this point, again, you can't necessarily project that much from Dwayne Eskridge, right? But they need a third receiver to be, you know, you look at the Bengals, right? Like they don't necessarily have the talent of them, but like having those three receivers to be able to withstand an injury, right? To be able to have Jamar Chase go down and not fall off offensively that much. I don't think the Seahawks can do that, right? And they have to have more depth at the skill at the skill positions to be able to compete at the absolute highest level. Yep. I think that all makes sense. All right, let's talk about the defense. That was obviously what Pete Carroll emphasized in his postseason comments is that, you know, the the biggest difference between the Seahawks and the 49ers was front seven. San Francisco was even in a game where, again, in the in the first half, they kind of struggled at times to stop the Seahawks. Still, the front seven was incredibly impressive in this and by the end of the game. And the Seahawks front seven was run over, I guess would probably be the the correct way to describe it in this one. Uh, I, I do think it's worth asking. So this is the fourth consecutive year that the Seahawks 
or the fifth consecutive year, I should say, that the Seahawks have finished below average in terms of defensive DVOA. They haven't been above average since 2017. They went from, you know, top number 10 in 2011, then top five every year, 2012 through 2016, which is the Legion of Boom era, you know, in its height, then dropped to 13th in 2017 and have been no better than 16th in the league since then with slightly below average. If you actually look at it, you know, not, not in terms of ranking, but in terms of the actual number, do we think that, do we think that there's that reflects the scheme? Because we've seen a lot of different defensive coordinators come and go in this time. We've seen a lot of players come and go. We've seen one constant, that being Pete Carroll. Is that primarily a function of talent, or is there are there deeper issues with this scheme? I would say it's primarily talent. And the reason for that is because they have tried a lot of different things on defense, at least according to the, the football tape people. There's probably a better word for this, but like they've they've tried different schemes, different ideas. They brought in other ideas, but I think like if you look at the players they drafted or traded multiple first round picks for, they like they just don't have the talent on defense compared to the 49ers. Like they don't have a Nick Bosa or a Fred Warner or a Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald or like all these other teams that have been able to maintain good defense for a lot of years. They just don't have. Like they don't really have any building blocks on defense other than Tariq Woolen, I guess. And we'll see how some of the other younger players pan out. But I I think it, it is hard to look at the unit that they have and expect great results for them. Um, I, I think the one thing that we probably can say is that whatever your feelings are about Pete Carroll as a head coach, and I, I understand the the defenses of him and like he's a great culture builder and all these other things that are true, but... I don't think it's justifiable to, justifiable to say that he is somebody who raises the ceiling of a defense or is able to get consistently good performance out of a defense because we just like he's the one that has control over the personnel and everything about the defense. So they, they, it's been a long time since they actually had a good defense. I think that's totally fair without necessarily blaming <laughs> the scheme. Uh, and they're they're obviously, I would like to say that there are coaches who we can look at that that you can say they definitely do raise the caliber of the defense. There might be for a period of time. I'm pretty skeptical of how long that will last outside of talent, right? If the Jets all of a sudden don't have Sauce Gardner, don't have three or four players, I'm not necessarily convinced that Robert Saul's defense is going to be a top 10 defense in the league or the Niners or whatever, right? Like Demeco Ryans is getting a lot of credit right now. There's a hell of a lot of talent on the Niners defense across the board, and they've invested in that talent on the defense. Same with the Rams, right? I mean, we were talking, Kevin and I were fighting about this yesterday and i was saying about brandon staley who ultimately was hired as a defensive coach who got jc jackson khalil mack uh joey bosa right like the defense stars wise the chargers have so many stars in the defense and got shredded by the jaguars in the second half of that game and lost a playoff game like it, it just i really i really strongly feel like talent is more important than scheme with regard to defense and probably offense also. I think this is kind of the thing that for me personally that we've learned over the last couple of years is, is and why I've probably defended Pete more this year than in the past is that, oh, and obviously Pete is highly involved in the talent as well. So you can hold him accountable for that. But the reality is the Seahawks need an almost complete overhaul in defense. They need so much more talent defensively. And again, when you're talking about building blocks, I'm trying to think it through and it's like, 
He specifically highlighted the front seven. I don't think we should be done in the secondary, right? Getting Jamal Adams back will be huge. Having Tariq Woolen in his sophomore year is huge. The, what Mike Jackson did this offseason or this, this season is huge. But you look at the front seven, and I said this to Kevin, was at least this year, defensively, the Seahawks have found a couple of pieces, which is not necessarily something that we've been able to say in the past. And I think we can pretty confidently say that Uchenna Nuoso is an NFL caliber player, right? And like, a, he's a, I think he is a fringe pro bowler. Uchenna yeah, Nuoso. I think he's an above average starter. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment at this point. Bringing him in, and also imagine the Chargers having also, right? Like bringing him in, bringing in Tariq Woolen, right? Having that. I don't, I don't think some, some of the, the murmurs about recreating the 2011 defense is not exactly fair. But Tariq Woolen, you can slot in is, yes, he is locked down, right? We're very, very good and comfortable there. Ultimately, I, I, I do want to say I feel like Saturday was a little bit of a reality check on Tariq Woolen that is as awesome as he is. And I, I still could not possibly more, be more excited about his future. The idea that he was like in all pro corner caliber cornerback this season based on some of his opponent's stats, I don't think that held up well to the scrutiny of the playoff setting. It's also one game. It it is. I'm just saying there's a typically, I mean, we see this in the in with in basketball. Young players typically do somewhat worse by adjusted plus minus than their box score stats. And I think there's an element of that with Tariq Woolen. Not that it's a bad thing to get interceptions, is you know, he he was sort of uh straw manning a little bit over the course of the season. Like, should I I'm not supposed to be intercepting these passes? But I think if you just go by the interceptions, you probably overstate that there's still some development needed for Tariq Woolen, which of course there is because he's only been playing quarterback for like three years. But yeah, I mean, ultimately they need a lot more talent on defense. I think that is very, very evident. And they have the picks to do it. Again, we'll talk about the draft later. But Pete Carroll today acknowledged that this defense is not, they're not happy with how the defense looks, right? It needs a pretty massive overhaul in almost every capacity. And those players that they do have there that are going to be returning are should be in the mix, but they should be part of a competition to play. And if that's where they're at, if they're at the place where, you know, not people are not necessarily slotted in, yes, we're ready to go here, right? Uh, you know, Daryl Taylor, Jordan Brooks, players like that. If they're part of a competition and there's other players that are beating them out, then that is great. And that's what the Seahawks need. They've been pretty devoid of developing young talent for a long time now. So of course this happened, right? They didn't draft in a lot of great places for a very, very long time. They traded the draft picks for Jamal Adams and ended up with a player who is not Jamal Adams' fault, but who was injured for the entire season. And who knows if he would have made a difference, but they just need more talent on defense. And that's kind of it, I feel like. Nobody could come in next year and change the scheme. If Pete Carroll decides, I'm firing Clint Hurt, I'm giving up all defensive responsibilities, I do not believe that there is a coach in the league who could come in and have this be a top 10 defense with the talent now. Probably not. I mean, I think the one thing that was good, and I mentioned this on Twitter about Saturday, is like, look, if this if the Packers win last Sunday night and the Seahawks just go into the playoffs off those last two games are the Jets win and the Rams win, and the defense looked pretty good against, you know, an injured Mike White and Baker Mayfield 
And the, you know, they did pretty well against Patrick Mahomes, all things considered in the loss prior to that. I think the Seahawks might've been able to talk themselves into their defense being closer than it really was. And one thing I'd be curious to look at that I haven't studied yet is it feels to me like the Seahawks defense over the past, you know, this five-year stretch we just talked about has been uniquely capable of bottling up bad defenses and getting exposed by good defenses. Like obviously everyone has that distribution because deep, like defensive success is actually probably more about your schedule than it is the defense. But I think even relative to the rest of the league, the Seahawks have a wider golf. Is that fair, Ben? Yeah, I I actually totally agree with that. And the other team that I think that's true of is the Patriots where um, whenever they play really good teams, their defense, at least in recent years, hasn't looked amazing, but their season long defense totals sometimes look okay because they just kill teams like the Jets and other teams that, um, don't have great offenses. And maybe there's something to Belichick and Carroll and game planning and like really being able to shut down offenses that are just really bad. And like, that's good. And it's good to win those games and it's good to shut down those offenses, but it can't, you can't let yourself be deluded into thinking that's representative of what's going to happen when you play against like actual real NFL offenses. Giving up 505 yards to, to Brock. <laughs> In fact, He's good. <laughs> That's what we're taking from this. So we sort of touched on this, but uh, let's let's ask the question specifically. Ben, where are you at with Pete Carroll right now coming out of this season? So I was pretty down on him be- before a, a year ago, basically. And the draft did some things to make me less out although there's still the huge caveat as extensively documented on this podcast after the draft of picking a running back with a, what was it? The 41st pick. And at the time, the argument was this team has a million holes. They're not competitors now. And drafting a running back, using this pick on a running back anytime is not a good use of resources, but especially so when you're a team that is so far away from competition. And a lot of Seahawks fans took issue with that. And I think ultimately especially on the defensive side, we, we've seen that like, this is not a complete team that only has one hole in the roster and that hole is a running back. Like there are lots of positions where they need help and could have better used that pick. And I don't think like there, there are a lot of NFL general managers that um, use first or second round picks on running back. So it's not like Pete Carroll's alone in this. And if he continues to have drafts that mostly follow big boards and have one off the wall position per draft. I think that's a huge improvement over what they were doing the five years before that, where basically all of their top picks were just completely outside of consensus and not, and not getting good value. So I'm a little bit more in than a year ago, but this, this draft will be important in how I change or not change my opinion going forward. If, if they go back to picking off-ball linebackers that are number 90 on the consensus big board in the first round, then I'll I'll be back to where we started. That was was a a Jordan Brooks Brooks, uh, comment. (laughs) Subtweet. Thanks for clarifying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm at a radically different place than I was a year ago. I mean, you have to give Pete Carroll and obviously John Schneider credit for the Russell Wilson trade, which again, I'm taking the L on that one, right? In the moment, we were really upset about it, but in hindsight, it pretty much transform the Seahawks organization completely, right? I th- which I think is fair to say from almost any perspective. 
between that, the things that we had the biggest concern with Pete Carroll about were early down passing, fourth down decisions. He got a lot better at early down passing. Seahawks were one of the best in the league at early down passing. I mean, you even mentioned those four design runs in the second half against the Niners. There were a lot of situations that they probably could have run more and maybe even should have run more. Uh, in those situations, they got a lot more comfortable with the idea of passing with Geno Smith under center for whatever reason or another. Uh, fourth down decisions were not awful. Could have been a lot worse. I don't think you can look around the NFL and be like, okay, these are the absolute best fourth down decisions versus what Pete Carroll did. I think it's it's totally fair to have high standards for your head coach. But knowing that there were a lot of very young coaches in this league who also were really bad at fourth down decisions, I don't think we can just say you could go out and get a Doug Peterson or whatever. Was Dable good? Was Brian Dable good? This year, I'm not sure. The Bills were when he was there, but I have, I don't know the Giants off the top of my head. I kind of don't think so, actually. Okay. So, but it's not just like go find a young, sexy coach. They're going to be good at fourth downs or an older one isn't. It's kind of all across the board. Kind of randomness across the NFL. And there's a lot of coaches who, in your mind, you might think are going to be aggressive, but when it comes down to it, actually are not. And again, have no idea why that is or not. I think they uh, wouldn't even bother to speculate. But Pete Carroll's done those two things, and all of the other aspects of being a coach of an NFL team, Pete Carroll's really, really good at, right? Like, Pete Carroll is very good at just being a coach of an NFL team. He has the team ready to play every Sunday. He's He's a good figure. He's somebody who you want to represent you, right? As, as your city and your organization, I think you can look at Pete Carroll and say, like, that's it feels good for him to be our coach. And I think the other issues that happened generally were probably talent issues that some of which were caused by Pete Carroll in the past. And he's going to have to figure out undoing them. But at least we have the opportunity to do it now post the Russell Wilson trade. And it's something that, uh, you know, we can criticize Pete Carroll in the past forever because there were a lot of bad decisions made, but in this very moment, thinking about him going forward, I don't want to hold him accountable, my perspective of him, based upon drafting LJ Collier or whatever, because pe- I'm confident that people can change. It'd be like, again, like holding Brian Dable, you know, pre his transformation offensively or whatever. So I think Pete had an awesome year. I was extraordinarily impressed with Pete, even getting to 500 on the season, making the playoffs. This was a resounding success, ending up with the top five pick. You can't really be upset with the the season in almost any way. The Giants had never gone for it in a toss-up situation uh, <laughs> as of December 6th, which is the most recent fourth down shot I can find from Ben. So that's that's kind of remarkable. Uh, yeah, I, I'm in a similar position, I think, when, when you look at just kind of what a crapshoot it is with these hot young coaches and how differently we feel about Sean McVay now than we felt about Sean McVay in, you know, 2016 or, or early on in his tenure. And, you know, we've, we saw it have happen over at lightning speed over the course of Brandon Staley's two years so far as head coach of the LA Chargers. Like, Coach, number one, coaches get too much credit when they succeed and too much blame when they fail. And that's that's always been the case. But number two, I, I think everything you said, like the the things that Pete Carroll brings to the table that are positives outweigh whatever whatever concerns you have, especially if he even at this stage of his career is continuing to adapt a little bit and change those. So yeah, I, I think I'm in the same point where I would be very I, I'm much more concerned about the Seahawks post Carroll, post Pete Carroll future 
uh, at head coach than I am about the Seahawks with Pete Carroll. Wow. If I could say that correctly. What a difference. Could you imagine a Russell Wilson trade is what took that to happen? I just, I don't feel like us a year ago could have imagined this scenario. Well, I have Pelton Cast Golden Rule. You never know what's going to happen, how you're going to feel about the future until it happens. Okay. Can we think <laughs> coming to that Golden Rule? Let's talk about Gino, right? Because there's been a lot of positive things said about Gino lately, right? The, the season is ending. Gino wants to be back. He was like, I want to really reward the Seahawks for what they've done. Wants to finish his career here. What, believe They believed in me or whatever. And I think as time wears off from the season, both parties, it is not going to be an easy negotiation, right? This idea that there's, there's good feelings right now. There's good vibes all around. But Geno Smith is going to want a lot of money, and the Seahawks are not going to want to pay him a lot of money. There aren't; It's not an easy negotiation when you have almost any quarterback in the NFL. It hasn't been an easy negotiation with Aaron Rodgers, with Tom Brady, players like that. With Geno Smith, it's going to be with Russell real. Wilson. And I mean, with it Russell Wilson. It came down to the deadline. Like, I, I don't think those were contentious negotiations, but yes. It's, it's not going to be, uh, hey, so like three years, 15 million just to reward us for believing in you. <laughs> Right. Like that is not what the conversation is going to be. Geno Smith has an agent and there's going to be conversations with other teams around the league. So it's one of those things where right now everybody's saying the right thing. Everybody's feeling good. These things can turn, especially with regards to quarterback, extraordinarily quickly. So I wouldn't I, I would. The only thing I would take from this is that the Seahawks would like to have Geno Smith back. But there's always a number. And that's the reality is what if the number gets ex- so high that the Seahawks can't fathom it? All of a sudden, there's not going to be any rewarding for anybody. It is just about, let's assess that situation when it happens. How we're feeling right now is that a pun cast golden rule has to apply. The way that you're going to feel in a situation, you cannot predict. So Ian Rappaport reported, I believe this was on Saturday, prior to the playoff game, that Geno Smith, quote, will be back, which is a pretty strong <laughs> that <was> really funny. <laughs> statement. It is stronger than anything Pete Carroll has offered since the season. He said, I, you know, I hope he will be back expects him back but has not been that definitive which i i don't think you should be like you there's really no upside he's a free agent they don't they don't have that ability i mean with the well, franchise they, take, they can yeah. but it's still it's not as clear as a player who's coming back with a contract so the projected franchise tag per over the cap all these salary figures will be via over the cap.com uh 32.445 Four four five million, and that would mean if the Seahawks decline to match an offer, they get two first round picks from whatever team signs Geno Smith. The transition tag would be slightly lower, thirty point four million. Given that small a difference, I don't think there's any sense in going transition tag instead of franchise tag. I, that's my expectation of what will happen. But then you can continue to negotiate off of that and sign a long term deal, and I think that would be the Seahawks' goal, even if they tag Geno Smith. So. What kind of uh, what kind of contract are you hoping for for Geno Smith, and what kind of contract are you expecting for him? To the extent that those are two different things. So I don't think there's any way that he'll accept less than thirty million dollars per year, and I would I would think it'd be higher than that. So some quarterbacks that are on deals that are thirty million dollars per year or higher are Matt Ryan, Carson Wentz, Jared Goff. <laughs> Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, Kyler Murray, obviously. And if I'm Geno Smith, I'm going to say I'm better than all these guys. I 
I just set the Seahawks franchise record for touchdowns and passing yards. And yeah, we know that those stats don't matter, but that's stuff like that matters for negotiations and NFL teams. And he, he's going to say, I'm, I'm better than all those guys. I, I deserve the money. And unless he really feels like rewarding the Seahawks, then I, I think he has a reasonable amount of bargaining power. And, but yes, I, I agree that the Seahawks are probably going to use the, uh, whatever one is the one that, would get two first round picks if somebody actually Franchise. signed transition tech or yeah. Franchise. Yeah. I, you're kind of talking me into the thick to thinking that Gino may not be a Seahawk next year. Like I, I think it's going to be a lot. I think there's going to be a tension out there for Gino Smith and there might be another team who values him enough. And the Seahawks did something last off season that I don't know if you guys remember it. They more or less, traded a quarterback for two first round picks and then ended up in the playoffs when they weren't the previous year. And the Seahawks also, I know that they, who knows how true this is, said they really, really liked Drew Locke when they got him back in, in the trade. <laughs> and if there's a world where somebody is willing to pay Geno Smith $40 million a year, I don't know if that team is out there, but if there is the, a world and give up or, or trade for him for two draft picks or whatever, right? For the right to pay Geno Smith, trade two draft picks. I could see the Seahawks talking themselves into we could get so much talent in every other position if you bring in another first-round pick and another first-round pick the following year or whatever package that looks like. And they could possibly be open to trading Geno Smith this offseason because of how well it worked out last offseason. I think they look at it and they know Geno is a big part of it, but they also know they need so much fucking talent, especially on defense, that having a few more assets might not be bad. And this is kind of the perfect scenario to be able to have one year of Geno Smith as your quarterback, have him play well enough to make the playoffs, and then get more assets back from him. No idea what the demand will be, but I wouldn't be shocked if that was a possibility. And this reminds me a little bit of, there was a line I had in the Pelham cast notes for several weeks last year, but never used in a podcast which is from Lost One by Jay-Z. Motherfuckers say they made Hove. Okay, so make another Hove. I mean, that would be the ultimate flex if the Seahawks traded Geno Smith on the franchise tag. And then we're like, we're doing this again with Drew Locke. Let's go. But it would be Drew Locke plus, I mean, think of how many first and second round draft picks. Yeah. I Ben made an interesting point with the number of quarterbacks that have a 30 million APY. I mean, it's about half the league and there's just such a dramatic disparity. There's no such thing. We've talked about this before. There is no quarterback middle class, basically, that everyone other than Jameis Winston and then Baker Mayfield, which I think was the last year of his rookie deal still, but everyone else, Tom Brady is at 25 million and that's a pay cut, right? Or, you know, taking a discount. Ryan Tannehill's at 29.5 million. And then it's Jameis Winston at 14, Marcus Marietta at 9.375. So the idea that you're going to get Gino at like 20 million a year on a long-term deal probably is not realistic. I mean, the one thing that I think will be interesting. There's in no fucking case, chance. It's not not realistic. There is no fucking chance of that happening. I, I don't. That's a less profane way. Not <laughs> realistic is a less profane way of saying what you're but saying. Not realistic is like, well, maybe like there is no chance that no, Gino Smith signs. Do you understand what realism is? <laughs> whatever <laughs> i was thinking maybe you could do like two years something like something like two years 50 million guaranteed with incentives that bump it up into the 60 million dollar range but even that seems unlikely i mean you know the interesting aspect is 
The Seahawks have been less committed to this with Russell Wilson with quarterback. Obviously, you have to read the market. The Seahawks are very into deals that they can get out of and that don't offer a lot of fully guaranteed money that's you know not guaranteed. They'll, they'll guarantee it for injury beyond the first year, but not fully guaranteed beyond the first year. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that element of it would play out. It does kind of lead me to think that maybe the best outcome for the Seahawks is... Geno Smith just playing next year on the franchise tag because they can swallow it with next year's cap space and, you know, getting all that dead money off their books. And it doesn't tie them in in case Geno Smith does regress next season and is no longer worth the same amount beyond it. And then if they want to keep him, they'd have to be ready to use the second year of the franchise tag as a bargaining chip and then possibly go the way of the Dak Cousins. I said Dak Cousins, but Dak Prescott and Kirk Cousins negotiations where one of them ended up staying and one did not who who of those teams that you mentioned those quarterbacks that you mentioned are happy with their quarterback of the teams that are paying less than 30 million well, or the, more than 30 million? Ben, ben mentioned matt ryan carson wentz right like jared i mean jared goff is the most enticing of that entire group right you have Derek Carr and the raiders so wanting to move on. I, I didn't say all of them i i gave a list of quarterbacks i, I that are making a lot of money that i think yes. you know smith can make a case that is better than but there, better there's some than. no-brainers like Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, sure. Dak Prescott. I, I think the, their teams are those teams are not super sad about the extensions they signed. Is Geno the the best from an outside perspective? Is Geno the best quarterback who will be on the market this offseason if he hits the free agent market? I mean, Derek Carr will potentially be on the market and Jimmy Garoppolo. I think those are the competition for him, right? If you're an NFL team, I'm just trying to understand this as outside NFL teams view it. Like Derek Carr and Jimmy Garoppolo coming off a fairly serious injury. I feel like most teams would say they'd rather have Gino. I think Carr is probably valued reasonably highly. And without looking it up, I'm guessing he's younger. So maybe a little bit more than Gino, but he's his deal is a $40 million per year deal. So even if Gino is a little bit below Derek Carr, then it, it's still. A, a good uh, chunk of change. And then, yeah, Jimmy G, I, I think I'd rather have Gino just because Jimmy G has had so many injuries and there's this unknown of how he would look outside of um, Kyle Shanahan and the crazy offense that we have now seen another quarterback succeed in. So I, I think there are reasonable question marks about how Jimmy G would translate somewhere else. I mean, it's still fascinating to me, the question of how the rest of the NFL would view Geno Smith. Do they feel about him the same way that the Seahawks do? Or is there skill skepticism that, look, this is this is a guy who was a backup for the league, was not valued in, in by the league for a long period of time for a reason? I I don't have a good sense for that. And I'd be very curious to find out. And maybe the answer is whether someone is willing to negotiate with him if the Seahawks do franchise tag him. I'm very fascinated to see how it plays out. I guess the question that I had was, if... Let's say flip these seasons, right? This isn't Geno Smith. This is Russell Wilson, who just had this last season that Geno Smith had. One of the best quarterbacks in the NFL at the beginning of the year. Fairly turnover prone in the second half. As Ben pointed out on Twitter, we did see this season. It was a higher class version. They finished third in pass off its DPOA that year as opposed to eighth. But yes. How do you think we're viewing Russell Wilson after this year? Are, are we, because now we're talking about paying Geno Smith more or less around the same amount as Russell Wilson is going to be paid, right? If this is the exact same year that Russell Wilson has, I feel like the conversation is that Russell Wilson is washed. 
I mean, the expectations said it a lot, but also Russell Wilson is making his average per year on the Broncos contract is 49 million. So I do not agree <laughs> that we are thinking about paying him the same amount. And they, they also gave up a bunch of draft picks. So if, if you calculated total compensation that was draft picks plus how much they're paying Russell Wilson, it would be something crazy, like 70 million per year or something insane like that. And living up to that contract is a lot different than whatever Gino will end up getting paid. Although I suppose you could think about it and say that if there is that kind of market for Gino on the franchise tag, the draft picks you're you're not getting by not trading him are essentially part of the contract in the same way, right? Yep. So, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment. If we were a team that had Drew Locke in the number five pick, would we be willing to give up two first-round picks to pay Geno Smith $30 million plus per year? The answer is almost certainly not, right? Now, again... We don't know what the rest of the NFL's interest is. Maybe that it, that deal doesn't exist out there for him. Yeah, and the other great unknown is how the league and how the Seahawks in particular view this quarterback class. Because if the quarterback, or if the Seahawks talk themselves into not loving any of these quarterback prospects, then they might just back themselves into a corner of saying we. We, we know we weren't contenders this year, but we think we're pretty close because Pete Carroll is very optimistic and we want to have the stability of Geno Smith and hope that we can fill out the rest of the roster with these picks and get better and go back at it next year. And if if they don't think that one of these quarterbacks next year is going to be that guy, then I could see them just going down that path. Yeah, I think you've sort of got two different paths, which is one path is you re-sign Geno and you aim to fix the defense through the draft. The other path is you draft a quarterback at number five. You're still going to invest on defense in the draft, certainly. But because of the fact that you're not paying $30 million a year to Geno, all of a sudden that gives you the ability to go out and spend some money in free agency on the defense as well. Those, to me, I think are the two paths you really have to think about, not Geno versus a quarterback you draft at number five. Yeah, and, and if you don't have Gino, hopefully you got some compensation for him leaving too because the free agency and all that stuff start happens before the draft. So they, they should know by then what happened with Gino. Right, and also just you know trying to play the comp pick game would surely not be as valuable in this case as, as trying to trade him. Uh, what does your ideal draft look like in terms of positions? Knowing that, okay, the Seahawks have the number five pick from Denver, of course. The, we are recording this prior to the Dallas-Tampa Bay game on Monday night, which will determine whether the Seahawks pick 19th if Tampa Bay can pull the upset. Otherwise, they will pick 20th. They pick 37th in the second round. And then the, and then the, in their own second round I pick, I think, can be anywhere from 52 to 54, depending on what happens with the... I don't know how the coin flip with Miami works. It doesn't matter in the first round because the Dolphins forfeited that pick, but it would matter in the second round beyond the Seahawks pick. So I think the the high value positions that we should be thinking about slash hoping for with the really high picks are quarterback if they haven't already signed Gino to an extension, wide receiver as we talked about before, where even if they don't want to have a ton of plays with three wide receivers on the field at the same time, like their dependence on DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett is never getting hurt. I think is a liability, and and we've seen that in games where. Tyler Lockett was injured or banged up or something. And it's it's so much harder to score if you have one real receiving weapon. And Tyler Lockett's not that young. So I, I think they, with one of these picks in the first or second round, I, I think they should take a swing at a wide receiver for the future. 
They also need a pass rusher, which is or multiple pass rushers, which I think is is the other really big need. So those are the three positions I would be highlighting for um, at, with the premium picks. Uh, I mean, I, I think I think Russell Wilson came back to get us a little tiny bit in the draft. I think being at number five instead of number four or number three is it hurts the Seahawks a lot. Again, these are rich people problems to have <laughs> to be drafting that high, but should should know you've seen that graphic a lot that the Seahawks are the first playoff team in since 2002 with a top five pick the following year. So that team actually traded into it. It was the Jets made the playoffs in 2002. They did have an extra pick from, I believe, the Lavernius Coles trade. So they <laughs> had 13. Yeah, this is a long time ago. They had the 13 and 22 picks. They traded up to number four, I believe, and took defensive tackle Dwayne Robertson, who was just a guy in the NFL and I <laughs> yes. have no memory of whatsoever. <laughs> it, it was a, it's so long ago that it was a pretty different era of a draft also. Though. Sure, but it didn't like set up the Jets for, I mean, and they had a quarterback. <laughs> they had Chad Pennington at that point, but it did not set up the Jets for many years of success. Well, and also <laughs> they like- They didn't make the AFC championship game a few years later with Sanchez. Just having a top five pick and making the playoffs is I, the NFL is so variable in all capacities that you could not lock it in, lock it in, right? You'd be like, yes, this is definitely what is going to happen with these picks. So they could hit, they could miss, whatever. So much more matters. Twenty two players are on the field generally, so that it, it just I wouldn't take too much from that. But from what we've seen at this point in mid January twenty twenty three, all of the draft has to happen. It feels like the top four is again, in this moment, could change very drastically in the time period before this, that there's a very clear top four in the NFL draft, two quarterbacks and two defensive linemen, right? Uh, a pass rusher and interior defensive lineman. And I think the Seahawks would be fucking thrilled to have either of those defensive players. And the real hope is that somebody falls in love with another quarterback and a quarterback moves into one of those picks and one of the defensive players comes down. Uh, I, I feel like you can almost set it in stone that the Seahawks take a defensive lineman or a pass rusher with this first pick in the draft. I would be, even if they trade Geno Smith, I would be legitimately shocked if the Seahawks took a wide receiver with that fifth pick or uh, took a quarterback with that fifth pick in the draft. I'd be especially shocked if they took a wide receiver. Uh, (laughs) And that is probably what their biggest need is as a team without, without being in the, uh, without being, the number one or number two picks and they should not trade up to try to get somebody like Bryce Young. Like, I think that would be a bad decision if they were there. Maybe they do it, whatever, but not being there. I think it it is set in stone that they take a pass rusher or Jalen Carter more or less with that fifth pick. I would love to see them take a wide receiver with that second pick in the first round and seeing some of the success of those mid first round wide receivers the last couple of years, they could have somebody, I mean, I fucking love Traylon Burks, right? If they, if you just slotted him onto the Seahawks with the other talent that they have and not have him be the number one receiver on the team, you know, you see even the impact that Jameson Williams had, who again, might've fallen because of injuries or whatever, but like the impact that he had some of those players in that territory, this is a little bit lower than that, but if the Seahawks could draft a wide receiver there, I would be thrilled. And then it's it's honestly, in the second round, even more pass rush. I would still like them to find, uh, I don't know if they're going to do it, but another corner and safety as well. Uh, and then when appropriate, they need to draft more linebackers also. 
Yeah, I mean, I think off-ball linebacker is one of their biggest needs. It's not as high value a position. Safety, I feel like with Ryan, Ryan Neal as a restricted free agent and, you know, knock on wood, Jamal Adams, I mean, it'd be very unlikely for him to play less than he did this season. I feel like you're probably okay at that. And cornerback, I think, is something you can address in the middle rounds. Is his interior offensive line, which we haven't mentioned yet, is another place they probably should be looking to upgrade this offseason. Yeah, definitely agree on interior offensive line where yes. you could argue that it's after pass rush, perhaps the biggest need on the team. It's just not a position that you need to use in uh, the, the first or second round to address. All right, let's talk about a few more offseason decisions the Seahawks have to make. There are a few potential extensions, which especially could come into play if you have Geno Smith franchised and have him at that enormous $32 million cap hit, which would basically swallow up the Seahawks entire cap. Uh, as much cap space as it looks like they have on paper. Uh, Chenna Nwosu is one of those candidates. He's making 13 million, has a $13 million cap hit next year in the second year of his two-year deal, uh, You know, especially depending on what they do in the draft. I think that's a possibility they look at. Noah Fant is going into the fully guaranteed fifth-year option of his rookie contract that the Seahawks picked up last year. That's paying him $6.85 million. So uh, certainly would be, probably be some interest in a long-term deal. And then Damian Lewis, if you do feel like he's a long-term starter at guard, he's in the last year of his rookie contract. He does have a tiny cap number, just $1.6 million. Uh, they've got a decision to make on Jordan Brooks's fifth-year option, which will be interesting to see. And maybe maybe the ACL injury that, you know, as Pete Carroll said, it's going to be a challenge for him to get back by the start of the 2023 regular season. Maybe that makes the decision for them. Uh, over the cap projects that option is worth 11.6 million, which again would be fully guaranteed if the Seahawks picked it up. Then on the defensive line, you've got a number of players who, again, depending on what they add there, and they do have Brian Monet coming off an injury, an ACL surgery that P. Carroll said was more complex than anticipated and could set back his rehab. Uh, but you've got Shelby Harris, they would save save $9 million if they waived him. His $6.5 million base salary, $2 million roster bonus due March 22nd, plus 500 k per game bonuses. And even though I don't think Shelby Harris played poorly at all, uh, is, is that worth $9 million or could you even restructure him? I think that's a possibility. Uh, if they released Quentin Jefferson, that would save them $4.5 million. Al Woods would save $3.7 million. And then Gabe Jackson, again, if you're looking to address the interior offensive line, uh, just has his $6.5 million base salary for next year that's non-guaranteed. So that's another possible position for roster for uh, cap savings. And then Quandary Diggs restructuring would be the last thing I'd look at. He just signed his extension this year, but it's a pretty enormous cap hit this year of, of 18.1 million. So if you turn some of that into a bonus instead of, uh, you know, salary, then that's a way to, again, reduce his cap figure. All right, per tradition, I think it's time to look at our chances of returning. It's a much shorter list this year than last year. Other than Gino, the Seahawks don't have a ton of really important free agents, but we'll go through the players that they do have and know that we can revisit this in September when we preview the season and see how hilariously wrong we were. <laughs> Quarterback Gino Smith. 80%. Wow, I was at like 100 before we started this podcast. I was at 95. I'm now at 80. I'm I'm at 80 also, Ben. I'm going to take 85. We're all uh, down on Jen. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've all talked ourselves into the chances. Is is the franchise take number not kind of a steal for Geno Smith? It is for one year. Yeah. 
I, I mean, Geno Smith is not like 26 years old. Is there any reason not to just let Geno play it out? I, I mean, I guess outside of the, the human element. I mean... And the tag, if they want him for not just one year and want the certainty of knowing that he's going to be in the position for a few years to come. And it's the possibility of another team coming in with an offer that you have to match on that franchise tag. I, again, who knows what the odds are of that, but that's the other element of play. I think he makes it to free agency on the tag. How about that? I think so, too. Uh, Drew Locke. Is he a free agent? He is a free agent. His rookie contract is up. <laughs> so it's restricted? No, he's unrestricted. I believe they declare... I'm not... A, don't ask me to explain the cap math, but over the cap has him unrestricted. He was a second-round pick, and it's just the normal second-round pick contract, right? So he's a... Right. Yeah, he's just a free agent. Uh, I don't know who else would want him, so regardless <laughs> what they do with the starting quarterback job, I could see them bringing him back, just like they brought back Geno Smith last year and a lot of other backup quarterbacks repeatedly. So I'll say two-thirds. I was going to say 90%. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm at 75%, so I'm going to split the difference Let's on see that Starting quarterback, Drew Locke, to you. Thank you. Make a new hove. Rashad Penny. <laughs> For a second consecutive year. Back Third consecutive again. year? So last year, I thought he would have... I thought somebody would outbid the Seahawks for him and ended up being very wrong about him. We also thought only one of Chris Carson and Rashad Penny would be back, which ended up... We well, right yeah, the, the, the Chris Carson situation was unfortunate. Um, I'll say... 60%? I don't know who else would bid that much, but wow. it doesn't feel like a luck. <laughs> I think this is higher too. I'm going to say 85%. I'm going to say 95%. Wow. I think Pete Carroll loves Rashad Penny. And again, yeah. <laughs> who else in the NFL does at this point? Austin Blythe, who spent this season at center, starting at center. On one of the Seahawks' beloved one-year this... deals for veteran free agents. <laughs> this is a... Optimistic view of the Seahawks, and I'll say 10%. I was going to say like 25, 25%. I'll say 30% just to be closest to do a Price is Right style here. Uh, Puna Ford, who uh, was the other member of that defensive line rotation, Pete Carroll talked about today that he played too much at five technique, three technique, instead of lining over the defensive, up over the defensive, or over the center, I should say. I don't really have a strong opinion on this, but... If they use a lot of draft picks on defensive players, maybe he won't have as much of a spot. So, I don't know, 40%. I'm going to say 50-50 on Puna. I'm going to say 65%. I think they are going to waive some of those guys that we talked about earlier. Cody Barton, starting linebacker. I forgot he was a free agent. Um, yep. They seem like they like him. He wasn't as bad as we might have feared going into the season. And I don't know what his market would be like. So I'll say 75%. More like 60% on Cody Barton. I'm at like 85%. I think it's the same thing. Seahawks are going to value him more than anyone else. I, I think Pete Carroll is more upset with this defense than you realize. I don't think but, he looks around and says, I love all of these defensive players. But you said it earlier. The point is competition. It's not necessarily not having these players. It's not having to depend on these players yes. in the same way. And let me tell you, 
this preseason was not marked by a ton of competition outside of somehow improbably. We need to remember this at every point. Quarterback was a competition. And then cornerback, there was a lot of competition for spots. Linebacker, I wouldn't say that Cody Barton and Jordan Brooks were really getting pushed. No depth at all. And we saw that when Jordan Brooks was injured. I mean, Tanner Muse played. He he was fine. He played. He had some moments. Uh, we haven't talked at all on this podcast about special teams, which is the Seahawks' secret strength this season. Number four in special teams DVOA. And one of those key contributors, pro bowler Jason Myers, oh. hitting free agency again. I we got a problem. I, I guess we're taking the L on this contract. Like it it had some fluctuations, but ultimately <laughs> it was probably a pretty good contract for Jason Myers. Yeah, it, it turned out fine. He was not as bad as he could have been. Did you did you guys see that? He was the first team all pro on the player voted team. <laughs> I did not see that. Okay. <laughs> My eyebrows raised. Um, seemed like they like him. So I'll say 80%. I'm going to say 60%. I feel like somebody might come in with a way too good offer for Jason Myers. It is plausible. Yeah. If there's a team that's like, we are a kicker away. <laughs> I'm going to split the difference on you two. I'm going to go 70% on this one. All right. With that, I think it is time for us to get to our over-unders for the 2022 season. Tristan has been so eager for this because he feels <laughs> so good. I, listen, I re-listened to the podcast and I stopped like 10 in, but I was doing very good through those 10. We start with the Arizona Cardinals, who had a line of nine wins this season. Back when, you'll never uh. believe this, they extended Cliff Kingsbury, Steve Kime, and Kyler Murray just last offseason. None of them had taken a one-way flight to Thailand at that point. <laughs> Line of nine wins. I went under, made this lock. Ben went under. Tristan went over on this. The Cardinals won four games to go under. Atlanta Falcons. Wait, wait, one thing on the Cardinals. Did you watch the last Hard Knocks? Have you seen the last Hard Knocks? I, no, I, I spotted it on my DVR earlier today and was like, oh, I need to watch that. <laughs> I just really prepared to be emotional during Hard Knocks. I, w- I really was like, I don't know if there are defenders that I have that strong feelings about, positive or negative around the league, but all of a sudden seeing like tributes to J.J. Watt, I was like, damn, I'm like kind of getting choked up watching this last hard knocks and i'm like cliff deserves another chance come on (laughs) it is kind of amazing that you predicted that cliff kingsbury was gonna get fired and also took the cardinals over that's all takes that's when you're when you're having all takes you do it all uh also just them filming him in the house that we saw at the draft that he still lives there it's just like it really it makes it really hard to root for cliff kingsbury when you see him in that house and all alone all alone in the house. You're just like, this is way too big. It's kind of my dream to live in that that house all alone. <laughs> you could just move that house to Charleston. <laughs> That's I would have taken a one-way flight to Charleston <laughs> when Tristan was fired. You fired his coach of Lucas basketball team. <laughs> there were some parents who were close to mutinying on Saturday. Oh, no. We'll save it for Coach's Corner. Uh, Atlanta Falcons had a line of Five wins. We all took the over on this one. We were all correct as they won seven games and nearly won the NFC South. I mean, not that close, but they were in the in the mix. Baltimore had a line of nine and a half wins. We all liked the over on this one. They won 10 games despite the injury to Lamar Jackson. 
gave the Cincinnati Bengals a bit of a scare last night. Uh, and we were all correct on that one. Buffalo Bills, a line of 11 and a half wins. Tristan and I took the over. Ben took the under on this one. Buffalo, wow. despite losing a game <laughs> to the game that was canceled in the wake of DeMar ha- the DeMar Hamlin tragic collapse on the field, still went 13 and three uh, and easily hit this over. Carolina Panthers, a line of six and a half wins with Baker Mayfield as their starting quarterback. And, and uh, Ben and I took the over here. Tristan took the under. Somehow, the Carolina Panthers won seven games and wow. hit their over. Keeping the Lions out of the playoffs. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Chicago Bears, a line of six wins. We all liked the under on this one. We were all correct as they went three and 14 to claim the number one pick. You've noticed that phrase, by the way. We were all correct a lot of the time this year. Cincinnati Bengals, we were not all correct on. Line of nine and a half wins. Tristan liked this so much, he made it his one of his overs. His locks, I should say, Ben also took the over. I went with Football Outsiders, which was very skeptical of the Bengals. 8.6 win projection, took the under, was badly wrong on this one as they won 12 games, again, despite having one cancel. Cleveland Browns came into the season with a line of eight and a half wins, despite the Deshaun Watson suspension hanging over them. Tristan and I took the, uh, we all took the under. We were all correct as they won seven games. Dallas had a line of 10 and a half wins. Got to tell you, I was not feeling good about this overpick when I was in Las Vegas in week one as they lost to Tampa Bay in a game that we played shortly after we conclude this podcast, uh, the rematch of that in the playoffs. Uh, ben had the under here, surprisingly. Dak Prescott, hate, noted did Dak Prescott <laughs> hater Ben had the under. Tristan and I had the over. They won 12 games despite the injury. Denver Broncos. <laughs> yeah. Denver Broncos had a line of 10 wins. <laughs> we all took the under here. We all felt bad about how the season was going to go. And we <laughs> never imagined that they were going to win half that many games. Five wins and hit the under. Detroit Lions with a line of six and a half. I got hard knocks on this one. <laughs> That's usually the opposite. I don't know. I usually I the same thing with Dallas last year. I got too scared of Dak Prescott's injury and took the under and was wrong this year. They seemed too desperate in training camp to try to win more games. And I took the under you had the you guys had the over and lo and behold, the Lions comfortably cruised past this with their nine wins. Toast as always to the Lions for taking the Seahawks (laughs) to the playoffs. Lifelong Dan Campbell fans. If the Lions don't beat the Packers. The Seahawks never have the opportunity to give up 505 yards to Brock Purdy. So just think about that nightmare scenario. Again, it was a long-term positive to know how bad this defense was. (laughs) Green Bay had a line of 11 wins, and improbably, I took the over, citing the Aaron Rodgers infrastructure. (laughs) Tristan and Ben both had the under. The Packers won eight games. Here was one where we all were aligned, and we were all incorrect the houston texans with a line oh. of four and a half wins the numbers screamed that they were going to be more competitive than this a 7.9 win projection from football outsiders instead despite winning on the last week of the season in lovey smith's last game as head coach tristan actually made the over a lock uh, but in, <laughs> alas they finished with just four wins i still kind of don't know what happened uh, what did they f- they finished with four wins 
Yeah, and a tie. So they sort of did get four and a half, but that does not count towards your line. Bullshit. (laughs) They got you exactly (laughs) four and a half wins. I'm sorry, but the Texans were a better than four-win team. Maybe they weren't, though. The Indianapolis Colts, back Uh, when we just thought of Jeff Saturday as an offensive lineman and analyst on TV, had a line of 10 wins coming into this season. Ben had the over on that one. Team Matt Ryan. He loves running backs. (laughs) Tristan and I had the under. The Colts ended up winning four games, although they certainly had the talent to win a lot more than four (laughs) games. Jacksonville Jaguars had a line of six and a half wins. Ben had the under on this one. (laughs) Did not love analytics god Doug Peterson. (laughs) Tristan and I went over and were correct as they won nine games. The AFC South and a playoff game. Duval. Kansas City Chiefs, a line of 10 and a half wins. We all liked the over on this one. They won a cool 14. This was a year where like the big (laughs) over numbers really came in well. The Las Vegas Raiders had a line of eight and a half wins. So mad about this. Tristan went over (laughs) on this one. I'm so mad about this. And he went over in his fantasy offense on Raiders players. (laughs) (laughs) You had Carr Waller and Adams to start the season, right? On one team. Absolutely, I did. Not Josh uh, Jacobs on any team. I, I had Josh Jacobs on a team. That worked out quite well. Ben uh, Ben and I took the under. Ben made this a lock. And that won with six wins for the Raiders. You're, are you going to get off your Josh McDaniels take? Do I have a Josh McDaniels? That he's the worst coach of all time? What? I that he cost you this over. Oh, yeah. Josh McDaniels definitely cost me this over. I don't blame Derek Carr at all. I think their defense might have been legitimately awful. But this idea oh, that they was. were benching Derek Carr for the last couple of weeks to trade him. It's just like, you have the worst coach in the NFL. Why not just fire him? Well, it'd be strange if they benched him for the last few weeks of the season. I mean, Nathaniel Hackett. <laughs> it did happen. <laughs> the Los Angeles Chargers staying in the FC West had a line of 10 wins. Ben had the under here. Tristan and I had the over. It did not matter as the Chargers won precisely push. 10 games to push. Los Angeles Rams. I said it was a good year for big overs. I guess this was not the case. Under still would have... You said Ben had the under? Yeah. Under still loses, even if they push. Uh, oh, it's a we, push. It's a push. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't think you okay, can bet no, on a push. Never if, it, if, if it's 10 and not 10 and a half, then it pushes if it's exactly 10. Right. The Los Angeles Rams did have a line of 10 and a half wins back when Baker Mayfield was the starting quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. And... Uh, I had the over on this one. You and Ben had the under. They won five games, of course. Less than half of their line in that case. Miami Dolphins had a line of eight and a half wins. I like the under here for some reason. Is did Tristan. Ben had the over, and he got this one as they won nine games despite the injuries to, to a Tonga Valoa. Minnesota Vikings had a line of nine wins. <laughs> Our process may not have been good here as we all took the over on this one. But the Minnesota Vikings sure did win a lot more than nine games. They won 13 of them, in fact, before being exposed as frauds by the New York Giants on Sunday. New England Patriots had a line of eight and a half wins. We all liked the under on this one. Everyone won as they won eight games. The New Orleans Saints had a line of eight and a half wins. And I thought that was low enough that I decided to make the over a lock here. 
Tristan also had the over. Ben had the under. Uh, they won seven games. I still believe in Jameis Winston. I know. They definitely were a good enough team by the end of the season. Like, I feel like process was right on that over. And that should be worth something. But not when our process was wrong, but the result was right. Then it's not worth anything. Like the Vikings? Yes. The New I mean, York they Giants. probably should have won nine games, maybe. I don't know. No, they had a negative point. Or did they end up positive? No, they were negative point differential, so they should have won eight, right? So... They would have gone under. Uh, the New York Giants had a line of seven wins. I went under on this one. Did not believe enough in Danny Dimes. Tristan and Ben both had the over. They won nine games and now have also won a playoff game. Would have been nice, by the way, for the Seahawks to get to play for the Vikings in week one. I, I was thinking about this, and it was just like, like you talked about with the losing is good. Losing for lack of a better term is good. Uh, even if the Seahawks, like, I think it would have been bad long term if the Seahawks won a play, beat the Vikings. At some point, they were going to get throttled by the Niners. Like, it would have been fun to have continued to pay attention longer. But, well, like, they would have the, played the Eagles, right? At some point, they were going to get throttled by the Niners. <laughs> even if they'd beat the Eagles the next round, at some point, they were going to hit the Niners and were going to have this game. So, it, it's just like get the better draft pick. Like they are so they are so much worse than the Niners are right now, and probably other teams in the NFL. But like, let's just they put us out of our misery. They're the fucking seven seed. Come on. The New York Jets had a line of five and a half wins coming off their four and thirteen two thousand twenty one season. We all liked the over on this one. We were all correct as they went seven and ten. Shouts to Mike White. Philadelphia Eagles. A line of nine and a half wins. We all liked the over on this one. Philadelphia got this in week 10 or week 11, right? Because they they covered very early, suffice it to say, uh, with finishing 14 and three. Those ones make me nervous. When you're saying it back, that I would have been like, yeah, I'm not seeing it with the Eagles this year. (laughs) (laughs) The Pittsburgh Steelers had a line of seven and a half wins. Tristan and Ben both had the under on this one. I, for nebulous reasons, picked the over. I guess their their Football Outsiders projection was 8.2 wins, so I guess that's why I picked it. And in fact, they won nine. I can't Kudos that one. To Mike Tomlin. San Francisco 49ers had a line of 10 wins. Tristan and I both had the under on this one. Ben had the over, and Ben was easily correct with 13 wins, although maybe we were counting on Trey Lance holding them back, and who knows what would have happened there. This I actually didn't remember that this was the case. The Seattle Seahawks had a line of six wins. Ben took the under on this one. <laughs> I took the under because a lot of books had it at 5.5. So I was like, oh, if it's right. six, I'll take the under. <laughs> Which is, I, I think I got it at five and a half when I bet on this in Vegas uh, before week one. Uh, Tristan and I both had what we called a spiteful over, I think. <laughs> expecting a seven and 10 season that would leave us frustrated by the Seahawks, not having a high enough draft pick. We were obviously process right was not totally right on that one, but the Seahawks did hit the over Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a line of 11 and a half wins. We all liked the under on this one. Ben made it a lock. We were all correct as they went eight and nine Tennessee Titans, a line of nine and a half wins. Again, we all liked the under again. Ben made it a lock again. We were all correct. That was felt a little dicey early in the season before Malik Willis and Josh Dobbs got involved in the the story. Uh, They finished with seven wins. 
Finally, the Washington Commanders, a line of seven and a half wins. Tristan and I had the under. Ben had the over here, just I think because of the fact that he wanted to have some overs in the NFC East. And uh, they, in fact, won eight games and went over. So it was a stunning success for the Pelton cast here. Uh, when we all agreed, there were 13 teams on which we all had the line in the same direction. The Houston Texans were the only one we were wrong. We were 12 of 13 wow. when we all agreed. Uh, I got 21 of 32 overs, unders correct, totals correct. Uh, 10, 21, 10 and 1 with the push. Tristan was 22, 9 and 1, which I think is an all-time performance maybe for both of us. And yet we both lost to Ben. No! Who had 24 <laughs> out of 32 or 24 out of 31 if you count the push. Correct on this. A 49% return on his investment if you had wagered on all of these. Uh, Tristan was at 31.5%. I was at 26.5%. An incredible year of over-unders for the Pelton cast that somehow did not translate into Tristan or my over-locks that well. Did you do you have the vig basically what you would have made? Is that what you're saying? The four. That's what yeah. Was? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like I think you have to hit like fifty five percent, fifty four, fifty five percent usually to make money. So since we were hitting about two thirds of these, <laughs> we all comfortably made a ton of money on them. Had we wow. actually bet on all of them, uh, Simmons and Cousin Sal both had very. very I think Simmons matched Ben's number with their over unders also. So. It, it's kind of interesting that this year, maybe they were obvious or whatever. <laughs> like maybe the over-unders are about to get more extreme in different directions next year. Like Vegas has to respond to this in some capacity. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're fixing games. I don't know how they respond. Whoever in Vegas is responsible for listening to this podcast and adjusting their life has yeah. to work well, out I, for them. I feel like Vegas <laughs> probably got killed on the over on, on the on the long-term bets this year the futures bets there was once a reddit tweet that indicated that the uh the line for the seahawks game that was going to be rainy was adjusted appropriately because they knew about the pelton cast research about <laughs> russell wilson <laughs> being touched by a drop of rain there's also some some certain parts of the internet if you get deep enough into it who thinks the games are already fixed so <laughs> wow <laughs> yes uh lions fans apparently thought that about the seahawks rams game last sunday but I do think the that the Vegas got I if we were this right and another group was also this right, who have pretty different processes, I feel like. Uh it seems like the overunders this year maybe ended up I don't want to say chalk because you can't really be chalk with regards to overunders, but maybe it fevered the smart football or whatever. Yeah, I, I definitely think some were probably fortunate. Like we all had the Titans under and we Probably all thought it was an obvious under, but it still took some luck of their starting quarterback getting hurt for that to actually work out. Right. Well, this the bad news is we're probably only going downhill from here when we do over <laughs> under totals next year. But is that the first time Ben has won? Is or is, or is he? No, he definitely won the first year. He did it at least. I, okay. I think I've done it three years, and I won the first year, and then last year I did like worse than anybody has ever done except for getting <laughs> all three locks correct. And then this year's back. I still yeah. never got a lock wrong. So maybe Usually we do very well in the lock. So that was surprising <laughs> yeah. that somehow Tristan and I like one, two thirds of them, but we're only 50, 50 on our locks. Was the Texans Texans? My... Yes. That's the one you missed. I missed new Orleans over. I thought I had the rate. Both of those feel like, like after the season, I don't, where did the Texans finish in DVOA? Not that high. They're not They're good. Terrible. Their offense was very bad. 
they were worse than it than they probably should have been this year. And the Saints ended up way to DVOA at least like number eleven in the league or something. Yeah, I, like I said, I feel like there were some things there about the New Orleans pick that I, I don't feel terrible being injured. Right. Although obviously he wasn't part of their weighted DVOA getting where it was either. So uh, Houston finished thirty first in DVOA. <laughs> okay. But it was a good 31st. (laughs) Just one general thought about the season in general, because I do think we went into this year feeling extraordinarily bleak about the Seahawks and their long-term chances, right? We knew that there were going to be draft picks, that there'd be an influx of talent. We were feeling good about the draft. But you do have to say that in these six months, since the season started and they actually started playing football, our perspective of the organization and the future of the organization has transformed pretty completely. And I think you have to give credit to the the front office and to the players, obviously, to Geno Smith for transforming our expectations. Geno is somebody who, at the beginning of the year, people thought that the Seahawks had the worst quarterback situation in the league. Now we're talking about him having a deal over $30 million. Uh, so th- for that, the talent offense, the two tackles, starting two rookie tackles on either side. Uh, yeah, that should have come up at some point. Tariq Woolen having massive potential during training camp, but I don't think anybody really expected that he was going to be a pro bowler. Losing Jamal Adams at halfway through the first game, the first season, uh, but Quandre Diggs being a pro bowler after that. A lot of things happened this year that were right for the Seahawks. Fortunately, draft pick-wise, a lot of things happened that were wrong for the Denver Broncos. And so now they're in this position with not only two first and two two second-round draft picks, with very good first and second round draft picks and the ability to continue to transform the talent on the team. There's nobody out there who would say that they don't need more talent, especially on the defensive side of the ball. I think Pete Carroll clearly today told us that he's the first of those people who's willing to say that, but to be in a position where you can look at it and say with four more players, five more players, a handful more on defense, this could look like a team that is not that far off from where the Niners are at. They need elite level talent and they have the ability to go get elite level talent because of these draft picks. So I think that we just have to be really thankful for the season that we had and appreciate it because there are a lot of teams, a lot of fan bases around the league who did not have seasons like this and who have never had a season like this, to be honest, that you could have, you could make the playoffs and have a top five pick and be watching something like the Broncos collapse and demise. Feel bad for Russell Wilson, but I do feel pretty confident that the Broncos are going to bounce back next year. You can etch the the Broncos over next season in stone, right? There's a few of these that you look at and you're just like, I know that's what's going to happen. And I think Russ is going to have a bounce back season and we can cheer for him. So, so, so confidently in a way that we don't have to be worried about the Seahawks draft pick. So I, I think this was, it was an interesting season all around. We went in with very, very low hopes. We didn't think that we'd even have the Seahawks as front and center through the entire season. We thought we'd have to be fucking talking about Husky basketball at this point. So to be here after a playoff game, I think it was huge what the Seahawks did. Pete Carroll did. John Schneider did in this last year. Yeah, and it's the games were way more entertaining than we ever expected them to be going to the season. And that's at the end of the day, we want to watch football games and be entertained while we do that and we're thankful to the players for playing and for the Seahawks there the Seahawks games were so much more fun to watch this year than I ever could have expected and I think Tristan said it a lot during last week's podcast like things change quickly in the NFL we I mean Arizona again a year ago was extending everybody after they made the playoffs so it can change positively it has changed in rapidly for the Seahawks not maybe since last January but since the Russell Wilson trade and has a chance to change again with the draft 
So on that note, Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thanks so much to Ben. We are going to quickly talk about uh, a blockbuster trade Sunday in the WNBA. John Quill Jones going to the New York Liberty from the Connecticut Sun as part of a three-team trade that said former Storm Center Natasha Howard to the Dallas Wings and immediately begin getting questions from people. What does this mean for the Liberty's chances of signing Brianna Stewart in free agency and for the Storm's chances of keeping her? And I got to say, the first answer I have is, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's the unique insight we're known for here on the Pelton game. I mean, it, so the first thing to know that I wrote about in the trade grades, after Tristan bullied me into finally doing there we go. trade grades. How did those do People were excited. I, I don't know how they did, but there were people that definitely said, like, let's go, WNBA trade grade. So did you post you posted those on, on the at K Pelton timeline? I retweeted them from at K Pelton WBB. I don't don't put them over there. Put them on the K Pelton timeline. No, they get a lot more reaction on K Pelton WBB. Do both. Again, it's retweeted from there. It's not the same. A retweet is not the same as a tweet. Okay. Well, I'll continue taking my Twitter advice from people that have many, many less followers than me. <laughs> Anyways. So as I pointed it out in there, the way that New York made this trade, sending out Natasha Howard, who makes more money than John Quell Jones. They also traded away Rebecca Allen for Kayla Thornton, who came from Dallas in this trade, who makes less money. They have more cap space now. So they have easily more than enough to make a max, even a super max via sign and trade offer to Stewie. They also could sign someone else uh, to not quite a max offer, but a pretty considerable offer. So like the, the, the like super team scenario in the WNBA is if Courtney Vandersloot and Stewie both went to New York, that's, that seems pretty unlikely. Uh, I mean, to me, the question is just kind of, how important still is the idea of Stewie going back to the East Coast near where she grew up in upstate New York as opposed to being out here in Seattle, which is the only place she's ever played, the only team she's ever played for? That that factor, we still don't know how important it is to her. The other element of it is, like, does she want to be a part of a super team? Now, one thing we see in the WNBA is all of these players that are star players are part of super teams in Europe. So Interesting. Stewie actually had play, has played with John Quell Jones. They only overlapped for one season, even though they both were with UMMC Ekaterinburg for a number of years because Stewie missed the 2019-20 offseason uh, after her Achilles injury or uh, was limited and then missed part of last season uh, with, with a second Achilles surgery. So they only played together in 2020-21. John Cole Jones actually came off the bench for that team. So Stewie like didn't really have to sacrifice anything other than what she already was really already because they had Brittany Griner at center. They had oh my god Emma Meesem in a forward alongside Brianna Stewart, who is a multi-time all-star. Courtney Vandersloot played point guard for those teams. Ellie Quigley, her wife, played shooting guard. Like those teams were stacked. But it wasn't necessarily Stewie taking any sort of a backseat to John Claude Jones. It would be a little different, I think, in a WNBA setting. What's the difference? Why? Well, because John Claude Jones is not coming off the bench. I understand that, but you're telling me that there is a team in the world that has had John Claude Jones, Brianna Stewart, and Courtney Vandersloot all on the same team. And they won the EuroLeague championship, yes. 
I mean, I would hope so with Brittany Griner. But, like, but the other teams are like, you know, the other top teams at that level are similarly stacked. Maybe not quite as much as like the Catherine Brady teams. Absurdly stacked. But also, if you're a person who was worried about Brianna Stewart leaving Seattle, you could say to yourself, there may have been a conversation at some point. And the New York Liberty may have been made aware of this conversation. I, don't, uh, I mean, look, the, the Liberty are going to trade for John Quill Jones, whether, whether Stewie is coming Just having, having the opportunity to trade for John Quill Jones. They're gonna yeah, it was it. an awesome trade for them. But what, what, did you, what did you give them an A for that? Or? Yeah, they, and they, they benefited from the fact that she had her choice. She met with uh, players, uh, the teams, I believe Rachel Galligan reported that and chose to go to New York. So I, I'd be pretty nervous about this. If I was the storm though, I can tell you that uh, people in the storm front office were not happy about this trade and the just speculating. <laughs> you, obviously. Yeah. You can't actually tell us that you can <laughs> assume the people in the storm front office. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm confidently saying like I, th- there have to be nerves around Brianna Stewart right now, especially knowing that they've played together and that there is a relationship there. I mean, uh, the, part of the thing about the WNBA is like almost all of these stars have played together at some point internationally, but they have specifically. Yes. How much do you think markets matter in the WNBA? I don't think markets are that important. The Storm have attracted a ton of major players, free agents to Seattle over the years. I think it's more about organizations matter. And, you know, New York was fined last offseason, fined an enormous amount for illegally chartering flights against the CBA's rules. And there's just, you know, they're they're owned by... Joe and Clara Sai, who also own the New York Liberty. There's a certain level of resources that the Liberty have. That... That's what I was going to say. Be- being fined is not a negative if you're a player. If Being fined for chartering flights is not like players look at that and they're like, oh, they were fined because they were trading players too well. No, I, but but it means they can't continue doing it. So when Stewie met with them, I think it was before the fine was known. Uh I, I think that's a concern. The storm, now the storm are building their own practice facility that'll be open in 2024. Where? Uh, and have in already, Everett? In Bay, right okay. across the street from your old stomping grounds. <laughs> and have always been known to treat their players in a first-class way as well. Just, you know, at some point, local ownership that is, is not as deep-pocketed is one of the, you know, one of the world's wealthiest couples. So, And, and you also factor in just the relationship with the Nets that they have. <sighs> If I had to speculate, again, completely from the outside, this doesn't seem great for the Storm. And if there was a year to make a break from the Storm, this is the obvious year. So I wrote uh, last week when we were doing our free agency predictions that I I thought Stewie would sign with the Liberty. I actually, based on just kind of the the direction of the wind right now, feel a little better about her chances of re-signing with the Storm than I did then. What about Courtney Vandersloot? What are you hearing about? So there was a report by uh, Annie Costabel of the Chicago Sun-Times that last year in free agency, she met with a handful of teams. The Storm was among them before re-signing with Chicago. So I I think that is a a very, her coming to Seattle remains a very real possibility if Stewart re-signs, or I suppose possibly even if not, but more likely seemingly to play with Stewie. How how are the Storm if they sign Courtney Vandersloot? Are they best team in the WNBA or up there? Are they competitive with the Aces? I mean, they were competitive with the Aces last year. They you know they still would have to figure out small forward because Gabby Williams almost certainly won't be able to play this season because of the prioritization rules. Uh, but you know, Sloot would be easily the best point guard you could get. To you go from the all-time leader in assists to the player who is, I think, already second on that list in Sloot, and it's it's coming for it. 
Cabby so. Williams can't play because these bullshit prioritization rules. She is has chosen not to play because of the bullshit prior. Likely, the French league will not the schedule will not allow her to play in the WNBA. And she, but it's a she it's a that. WNBA rule, not anything else. Correct. Pay the players more. That's how you prioritize it. But not making bullshit rules that stop people from making money. That's their plan long term. I I don't think that this. I think this move, rule is it is currently written is short sighted. So. We'll see. Uh, players, again, can't begin negotiating. Well, the other thing that we haven't talked about is Stewie had an emoji-laden tweet, a, just a tweet of emojis on Monday that sent WNBA Twitter into a tizzy trying to figure out exactly what it meant for her free agency. Oh, my God. So, like, the, now that we have the emoji-laden tweet, we oh, Welcome WNBA to free the agency. game, WNBA Twitter. Let's go. So, Saturday... The uh, 21st is the first day that players can begin having conversations with teams. They can't officially sign until Wednesday, February 1st, but uh, I'd anticipate that we'll hear of many deals before then. So that's that's the soonest we could find out. Wow. I'm really fascinated to decipher what these emojis mean. <laughs> we'll be figuring <laughs> out by the time we release the <laughs> weekly pod later this week. Uh uh, excited to talk about the Kraken. Uh, had their eight-game winning streak snapped on Monday, but uh, is still the NHL's hottest team, which seems like it's bad on the ice. But I guess it's good. Uh, so wait, when are we going to? When does WNBA free agency open? Saturday. Saturday. Do you think we'll know quickly? I don't think we'll know right away, especially because it's on a weekend. But we'll see. But like within a week or two, like things are going to move quickly into WNBA. I, yes, I would. I would. I would be surprised if we didn't have an answer by February first. Okay. Heating up. I'm yep. loving this. All right. With that, thanks so much for listening. Thanks. I'm kind of surprised there wasn't more engagement with this tweet. Right? It's like 694 likes, 205 quote tweets. Yeah, that is kind of surprising, but maybe people are quote tweeting the quote tweets. Also, it means nothing, probably. It's tough to say. <laughs> I have not spent that much time trying to decipher it. It's pretty hilarious. <laughs> a trophy, a baby bottle, a small airplane, a house, money, basketball, <laughs> a wave, an equal sign. Okay, so all of those things, let's say that they equal a leopard, <laughs> a crocodile, a building construction, an electric plug, a Virgo, and paw prints, and a newspaper. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Liberty confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what most people think. On the left, it's C. I can't tell what's on the right. I like that that person is so confident. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, figured it out. Obviously, trophy, I guess the storm of one trophies. Baby bottle, unclear. Uh, well, might be... Stewie has a child. Stewie has a child? Yeah. I don't know why that equals the storm, but okay. Uh, <laughs> small. There's industry for, for airplanes here. Uh, <laughs> I think that's travel. 
I think that's Travel. flying overseas. Okay. Or maybe it's flying longer distances because you're on the West Coast. I don't know. She has a house here. Does have a house here. What, she has money here. <laughs> yeah. A basketball and then the wave. But the you know New York is also uh, on a coast. Neither of them are really known for their waves. Maybe she's going to LA. Oh no! I like the equal sign in the mid in the middle, and then just like total nonsense over here. The best I can come up with leopard is puma. People have called said that this refers to concrete jungle. Is the New York interpretation the building construction? I I do get it. I love that the idea that like an electric plug, Virgo. Do we know who's a Virgo? Stewie is. Stewie's a Virgo. I bet what she did is she went to her like most frequently used emojis and just typed them all out, and that was it. Oh my god, that would be that would be such a good explanation. That would right. be great. Instead of the equal sign in the middle is trolling, for sure. Because that that makes people feel like they have to decipher it, but it gives you. Wait, let me see how many it gives you in your like uh, most used emojis. Okay, hold on, hold on. Okay. Frequently used is like, I don't know, it's probably more than that, but you could very easily just like tap all those and then throw an equal sign in the middle just to make people think that it's leading to something. Anyway, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> the basketball being in there too. We've got several days of people trying to decipher this. It's like Pete Carroll's like draft tweets or whatever. Yes, yes. <laughs> Before the it draft is happens. like that. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Nobody has, has anybody ever gone back and done the Pete Carroll draft tweets and figured them out or whatever? Because it's all at the whim of other teams. <laughs> I'm sure that you could like think you came up with something. The the only good thing about the Pete Carroll and the draft tweets is that for a long time they were drafting players that nobody else was ever going to consider drafting, so they probably could call their shot. Oh no. Or whatever. Uh but I'm sure that this is what it is, where it's just like she's having fun. You gotta give it up to Pete Carroll. Dude, we And to we, Stewie, apparently. Yes, you gotta give it up to Stewie for knowing that people are because I I bet you what happened was I'm now speculating uh, outside of the emojis was every single person the second that the, people were asking us about right. what the trade means every single fucking person on earth was like so you're going to new york right the stewage she's just like so she was probably like i don't know like i'm still thinking about it or whatever figuring it out and she was just like fuck it i'm gonna fuck with everybody and just post about this because i've been asked so many times in the last day ah <sighs> This is this is the WNBA's version of was it DeAndre Jordan? DeAndre Jordan. That's right? why I, that's why I quote tweeted this with the rocket emoji that was like a not actually an emoji but like a picture of an emoji that Paul Pierce tweeted back in 2014. <laughs> Felt quite pleased with myself on that one. <laughs> this is good, right? Because NBA free agency was pretty hot by 2014, but I feel yes. like. That's the time period that people really like the internet started like blowing up around NBA free agency. Yes. Right. So the WNBA has finally entered the chat and look, no matter what, I'm just like, I am so much more engaged now in like 
what's going to happen. But it also, you know, most people don't watch NBA games also. Um, but they're slightly aware of what happens. And in a similar way, the transactions are going to make the WNBA huge. That's when they're, the players are going to start getting paid more. Hope so. I can't freaking wait. All right. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs> I don't know if that was part of the podcast. Always going to be post credits. Yes. Oh, Lord. <laughs>